As I read from God's word, just three verses. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 24, coming into the middle of a long, theologically rich, run-on sentence. It is, in the history of sentences, not just one of the longest the world has ever seen, perhaps, but perhaps one of the most important as it conveys to us the significance, the glory, the truth of God's redeeming mercy. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you this morning. I would pray for some measure of endurance with my voice, but also endurance for those who sit and listen. It is easy to grow distracted. It would be easy. Lord, it is inevitable that when the truth of your word is preached, the evil one has great investment and causing us not to hear it and to respond in obedience. That you would, by your spirit, even now, settle our hearts, settle our minds, settle the young, and help us to sit at your feet for a while this morning that we might hear wonderful things from your word. This we ask in your name. Amen. God does honor the prayer to settle the hearts of our young. It just seems to take more than one Sunday, doesn't it? And this morning, as we come to the book of Romans again, we come to what is no doubt, as I have said already, a sentence that is full, rich, deep, with theological significance but no mere just intellect or the conveyance of knowledge and truth, but hot gospel, a kind of gospel that is meant to take hold of our hearts and change us forever. As I have endeavored to split this text, some measure of faithfulness, knowing that there is much even here this morning that I could focus on, I want to take these three verses so that we might understand the significance of the moment in which Christ, having completed the work of redemption, sat down upon the throne of glory, of which the Ark of the Covenant at the time of Abra- or, sorry, Moses and the Old Testament Israelites when it was crafted, the significance of that Ark was not that it was just a box, 
but it was a copy of the throne in heaven. And the significance of Christ taking that throne once and for all, and what it means for us, is those who need to be redeemed in the sight of a holy and righteous God. This morning, I want to take up three headings, and there are really three quotations in this text. The first is a parenthetical heading through redemption. The second, again, the same, set forth as propitiation. And the last is passed over. Through redemption, we see this in verse 24. Set forth as propitiation, we see that in verse 25. And then passed over, we see that in 25 and 26. So let's take up these three headings and work through this particular section of God's Word. The first thing that we see, at least this morning, there has been much that we have already seen, is that the righteousness of God has been revealed apart <clears throat> excuse me, from the law. Now, the righteousness of God that was revealed in the law in the Old Testament was not a righteousness that would come through works of the law. It has never been, nor will ever it be, in the history of redemption, that there is any other gospel than the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. That was not the intent of the giving of the law, nor is it in the intent in our keeping of the law that somehow... By the law, we might, by merit, appease the righteous wrath of God. That is a dead end. Don't go that direction. But the law and the prophets revealed as a tutor, as a teacher, for a time, what Christ, the fullness of God's revelation, would do in his flesh by keeping the law, By suffering under the wrath of God for our disobedience to the law, his favor, then his works imputed to us, they become ours, and we are declared innocent of every fault. This, Paul has already said, is the gospel. And because it is only the righteousness of Christ, there is no difference. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And though there are in this life more or less heinous sins, depending on the things that you do in relationship to the law of God, even that most innocent child who seems to have very little will, even in their infancy, is a sinner. In fact, that child was a sinner in the moment of their conception. As soon as they became a person conceived in the womb of their mother... They were conceived under the curse. And apart from the electing grace of God, they would be separated. Now, this redemption, verse 24, where we read, by being justified freely by his grace through redemption, that the redemption that God works is freely by his grace. Now, we know the definition of grace, or we at least ought to know it. It is the unmerited favor of God freely given. But it is not enough to simply know what grace is, how it is defined, as we look at the sort of lexicon of Scripture. Lexicon is just a fancy word for dictionary, children. 
How is that word defined? It is not only that, but it is a grasp of grace, really and truly, that we must first understand. And the only way that we understand the weight or the significance of God's grace is if we first understand the depth of our own sinful depravity. And the revelation of our own sinful depravity in the Bible is not harshness for harshness' sake on the part of God. Rather, it is itself a mercy because it is the very part of the gospel that brings saving faith. Parents, do not regret for one moment challenging your, pe- your people, <laughs> your children there, your people, over their sin and calling it what it is. And do not be afraid for a moment and you, when you look at the, the heart of your children and go, oh, what a heart, a heart of, of darkness. Yes, but good news. There is a light that shines into that darkness. So every <clears throat> disciplinary encounter should be two things and a, 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 a blunt, clear This is who you are. This is what you have done. And this is how that problem can be remedied in the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you do not do that, then there will be exasperation. In the same way, we live in exasperated times with exasperated people who've tried to apply all manner of cures to the problem of sin that they see in their hearts other than the true gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the, or these are the empty cisterns that cannot hold water It is referred to elsewhere. God says what is wrong with us. And you would be a fool to hate God for that. In fact, you must receive this sentence and you must plead that which alleviates your, well, the sentence, the curse. And so this observation that redemption freely offered In Jesus Christ, by grace, that stands as the the gateway of paradise. In fact, it stands as the tree in the middle of that great city. He sits upon the throne of that great city. The whole city of God's foundation is built upon his gracious response to us. So redemption, that is... The reconciling of two parties that are at odds with one another. We have offended a holy God in our sin. We must be redeemed to him. Our sins must be paid for. And this work of redemption is a response not of God owing us something, but freely offered by his grace in Christ Jesus. And so, as we continue to look at this first point, through redemption, it is by grace in Christ Jesus, as we see at the end of verse 24. In Christ Jesus is a sort of simple way in which we can begin to unpack that short two-word phrase of our covenantal union with Christ And that covenantal union, historically speaking, looks like running to him, being in him, fleeing to him for safety. It is the Israelite families inside the houses when the door was painted with blood 
It is Noah and his family in the ark. It is when Abraham was getting ready to slay his only son. And as he lifted the knife, the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not kill your only son. And he showed him a ram in the thicket. It is in that ram that that son Isaac was saved. And as Derek Thomas so beautifully pointed out and many years ago in a sermon that I heard, there was no ram for Christ. He was offered. He is the sacrifice. And so this entire blood-bought system that we find throughout Scripture, the law and the prophets, for how can you know the significance of of the death of the Messiah if you've not read Leviticus. (laughs) If you don't know and haven't read Genesis 3, when God took one of his creatures, he slew that creature, and then he covered Adam and his wife with the skins of an animal. That was the first death in all creation, physically speaking. And it pointed to The very promise that Abel believed. And of course Cain hated his brother. Because his brother understood the grace of God. And Cain rejected the grace of God. You cannot read the Old Testament. And come to Matthew. And hope for anything other than the Messiah as a sacrifice for sins. He must be the great high priest who suffers. And so within this, what the gospel is, right? It's not just this is the gospel, but when you understand what it is, there is within it a very clear implied invitation. Get to the cross and be saved. Be covered by the blood. This is why Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church, and he was so fed up with their disunity... It is because they had forgotten that they were one in Christ Jesus. They thought there was some sort of caste system within the church based upon merit or clothing or perfume or hair. When they had the fellowship meal downstairs, they had the rich people table and the poor people table. Literally. Like some kind of high school where the cool kids sat, right? The jocks and the goths and the nerds. There was division. But there is no division in Christ. There is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What that means is we're all damned apart from some intervention. And as we see in the word of God, that intervention must be Not of this earth. It must come down from heaven to us. Gosh, there's so much more that can be said. But I'm going to move on. Let's look at the second point. Set forth as propitiation. I I don't want you to lose sight of the little words. There are no little words in scripture, okay? They've all been inspired by God. And yes, this is a translation of the original language, which is Greek. And if you are very interested in the words... Go take a class on Greek. And you will see just how important not just one word is, but the construction of that word. It's tense. And how it's tense and gender are related to another word in that sentence that's not where it should be because Greek and English are not the same. 
English is very simple in terms of syntax or word order. Greek is not, but it also makes it a far more beneficial language in conveying deep sense and meaning. In these two words, set forth, I talked about them last week, but I want to talk about it a little bit more. This phrase, set forth, has not only sense and connotation about a plan, because God does not reveal something that has already been planned from eternity past. When we speak of Christ, the Lamb, who was slain before the foundations of the world. Now, did Christ die in time and space? Yes. Jesus, the person, died upon the cross, fulfilling the role of Messiah or Christ. But the Gospels, the epistles, speak of him also as the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. That somehow there is this cosmic pretemporal significance of the sending of the Son of God as the Messiah. And you start to go, what? It's a little early in the morning to speak so esoterically. It is for me too. But the thing that we need to understand is this couplet set forth is presented to us in Paul's epistle is that the plan... And the carrying out of that plan are all part of God's triune order and design to bring about reconciliation between sinners and himself. The son was not always functioning as the Messiah. There was a time when the son of God in creation was not the Messiah. But in Genesis 3, when the promise is made, that function of Messiah, Christ, or the Son of God, rather, willingly took upon himself. And from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21, the Son of God performs the role of Messiah. And then there will come a day when Jesus, the Messiah has judged all the world, he will hand over back the throne of heaven and earth to the Father. But we're not there yet. This is what Paul means by set forth. It is not just plan, but it is the presentation of the plan. It is God revealing to men setting forth to them, this is how you shall be saved. He presents it to us. It is, it's just revelation. It speaks of God who on that great morning or night when the angels broke forth in song to the shepherds, Hosanna to God in the highest and on earth peace with men. Why? Because the God-man, well, really, the Son of God became the God-man. And in that day, on that day, <clears throat> he was born into the world. Even as his conception had been announced by the Holy Spirit, his birth had been announced so that we know exactly who the Redeemer 
of the elect is. And every time the gospel is preached, every time the word of God is preached, God God sets forth to you this Messiah. And there's the question. What will you do with what God has set forth? What will you do, not just with the content of the doctrine, but every time the word of God is preached, God is, in a good-natured way, saying, you must believe. You must be redeemed. And this is how. Through the propitiation by his blood. Now, that's right. In order to know the gospel, you need to know some fancy words. But these words are not new words. They've been with us since the beginning of Revelation. Now, if you were to do a little bit of a word study, which is something absolutely worth doing, and this word, propitiation, refers to an Old Testament concept that Strong's Theological Dictionary defines in this way. As it relates to propitiation, it is used of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which was sprinkled, which is where you get sprinkling and baptizing in confessional reformed churches, was sprinkled with the blood of the expiatory, There's another fancy word. Expiatory just means washed, made clean. The expiatory victim, that is the blood of an animal. On the annual day of atonement, this rite signifying the life of the people, the loss of which they had merited by their sins, was offered to God in the blood as the life of the victim. And that God by this ceremony was appeased. And their sins expiated. Remember? Expiated, washed, cleansed. Hence, the lid of expiation, their propitiatory. (laughs) That when the high priest of Israel walked in to the Holy of Holies, he took the blood of that atoning sacrifice and he sprinkled the lid, the instrument of that Holy of Holies, And that lid is therefore made holy and then God would descend upon the Holy of Holies and dwell with his people. And once a year, one man would go in. This was a terrifying experience. It was terrifying because God dwelt in that place. It was the room in which God inhabited and it was a copy of heaven. And at the center of the heavenly court, this is why apocalyptic literature may be for us the most neglected yet most important literature for us today. Because we are so worldly-minded, Gnostic, and just so wickedly utilitarian. Right? If I sin and nobody sees, then of course it doesn't have an effect. No, it has an effect. We are so blind to the beauty of what lies beyond the fabric of creation. It's hard, isn't it, 
Because we have these things in the front of our head and they sort of dictate all that we understand. They dominate our perception. And yet we have this Bible with words on pages. And we are called to look, look into the word of God, which is not just look at the words, but meditate upon their content and their truth. The mercy seat could only be occupied by God when it had been cleansed by the blood of a sacrifice. This is why Hebrews is one of those books where as you begin to read through it, you cannot contain your emotion because you begin to understand and grasp the significance of when the writer of Hebrews, probably Paul, in chapter 9 says that Christ once and for all suffered and then he took the seat. He sat down by merit of what sacrifice? His own. That Christ has in his blood occupied a throne that was not occupied until he died and was raised. Which is why the scroll could not be opened in Revelation until the Son of God had finished suffering and had been raised and exalted to the throne. How in the world does that relate to propitiation? That Christ is on the throne is the evidence of his identity as our great high priest. And there is therefore no more need for our sins to be covered. He has done it. This is why John Owen speaks against the Mass. The Roman Catholic Mass, maybe you do or do not know this, is a ceremony and service whereby the church marks the re-sacrifice of Christ for our sins. And Owen said, if Christ is always the Paschal Lamb, he can never be the transcendent high priest. He's never on the throne. Not with any lasting merit. His work is done. So when Christ upon the cross says, it is finished, it is finished. There is therefore no difference. There is nothing that you and I can set forth before God that argues a greater case than the fact that Christ is seated upon the throne in our flesh. Never to die again. Fully sufficient, fully efficient. That means effective. It is enough and it is effective for people like you and me. And it is by his blood. That is why he says... <clears throat> Let me get there. As a propitiation by his blood through faith. What does it mean here? Received by faith. We need to receive it. And then I want to go to another section there. Bear with me. As it relates to this second heading, set forth as a propitiation, which is a demonstration of his righteousness. It is to demonstrate his righteousness. Now, the Lord God, Yahweh, the triune Lord, broke no laws, nor bent justice, nor practiced any kind of favoritism in the bringing about of salvation to sinful men. In fact, God could not be righteous nor provide salvation for any sort if he were to be anything other than God in his bringing salvation to his people. 
Now, here's what one pastor says about this idea. So what God did when he sent his son, and this is why we get excited in church, and this is why tears fill our eyes when we think about Jesus, and this is why the gospel is still good news in the world today, because God broke the law for love. I said to every sinner, God broke the law for love. I'm trying to embody his spirit. I, I can't do it. I mean that he scooped you up in his arms. I mean that he's carrying you in his grace. I mean that what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man. God broke the law for love. That's Stephen Furtick, by the way. That is not the gospel. That's a false gospel, and dare I say, it's a pretty potentially damning gospel. Because if God broke the law, if in his redemption he did not demonstrate his righteousness, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Guess what? Christ is down here with us now. Which was why it was so important that when Christ was tempted, that he obeyed. Now why did Furtick say this? Because he thought it preached, right? Because it sounds preachy. It sounds like something that would reach those whom Paul has already said in Romans 1 aren't looking for God anyway. Only the Spirit searches the hearts and minds of men. There is no gospel without understanding the law of consequence and wrath. And if God were to break the law, he could not redeem those who were under the weight of it. Period. Full stop. That's a liberal gospel and it doesn't save anyone. It cannot, because it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. God demonstrated his righteousness. If God were to say, hey, don't worry about it, not only would that be against his will and his character, but it would bring about no redemption whatsoever. So God brought redemption justly, rightly, and satisfaction of his own wrath. He never broke within himself or the law, the revelation of his own holiness in order to bring about salvation through the Son. That is very important because there will be many who embody the spirit of this age who will compromise doctrine for what sounds preachy. But why would the spirit move according to content that was not first given by the Spirit to begin with. It's not the Spirit's mission, nor is it his work, to move through false gospels. Now, let's go to the last point here. Passed over. Passed over. And as I put there, landed upon. In verse 25 and 26, we read of the propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, that's just patiently waiting, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, in my freshman year in seminary, as I was studying the Pauline apostles, one of my professors assigned to us Paul by Herman Ritterboss. If you want a book to read for 2024, I would commend to you Paul and his epistles by Herman Ritterboss. Herman Ritterboss was a Dutch theologian. And in that book, 
What Herman Ritterboss is trying to do is explain the significance of those, two, those three words, in Christ Jesus. And it will, it's a weighty, substantial, difficult to plod through kind of book. He has another book on redemptive history that is also very good. But what Ritterboss contends as what the scriptures teach, and I think he's absolutely correct, is that when Christ died upon the cross, the whole weight of all the sins of the saints, past, present, and future, were put upon Christ. So that in covenantal union with Christ, you and I, before we ever lived a day, had our sins paid for on the cross in that moment. So when Christ says it is finished, he doesn't die later for your sins. They're merely applied later to you. Now, this is the way Richard Gaffin expresses it. Richard Gaffin was a professor at Westminster Seminary. And then someone whose name I cannot remember, I'll, I'll look for it and I'll attribute it to him next week. As he expands upon this, this is what Richard Gaffin says, then here's the commentary. A dead Christ is an unjustified Christ. And an unjustified Christ means an unjustified believer. It's really just a taking of 1 Corinthians 15, isn't it? Conversely, a raised Christ is a justified Christ. And a justified Christ means a justified believer. We are raised in him and justified in him. And that righteous verdict can never be overturned. It is no expiration date. It is the same verdict rendered to Christ, which is his forever. Through our union with the beloved, what is his is ours. It took me time to wrestle with and become comfortable with the language that is required in order to help explain some of these things. It will take you some time. What Gaffin is saying, what the commentator is saying is simply this. If Christ is not raised, then you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what Paul says. And the way in which Abraham's sins were passed over was because Christ was guaranteed to come. That was the plan. There were many people that lived before the coming of Christ. Many of them went to heaven. But they're going to heaven, their sins being paid for, were not paid for at a time before the coming of Christ, but in the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection. In the same way ours are as well. That God is not bound by the constraints that we are bound to. And so Abraham died in Christ, not yet revealed. The same way that you and I die in Christ if we are his after he has been revealed. And in fact, no man will be fully judged until the last day of human history. Our judgment is eschatological in nature. That is, it relates to the end times. When the Israelites hid 
in their homes, standing, eating bitter herbs and lamb and bread, unleavened bread. And that angel of death and the wailing that was heard throughout the entire nation of Egypt, that was a national sign to those people that the only way to flee the wrath of God is through the blood. And if you are not under the blood, you will be condemned. That salvation of those firstborn sons is because of Christ that would one day come. When Abraham was commanded to stay his hand and not kill his son, it was because Christ was coming. When David confessed his sins with Bathsheba, when Nathan the prophet said, you are the man. And David confesses his sins. His confidence of forgiveness is what? Not the merit of his sincere remorse, but that his sins are covered by Christ not yet come. But now the substance has been revealed. And just like Noah preached, get in the ark. So too we preach today, come to Christ and be saved. Because it is Christ and in Christ alone that full satisfaction can be made. And so Paul concludes, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. What does he again mean by present time? Jesus in the flesh. And the way that he is both just... Demonstrating his righteousness, not unjust, is that he has poured out his full wrath, that is God the Father, upon the Son, so that we who have been given to the Son might be saved from that wrath, having been justified by his grace, having no fear. Now, what does that mean for you and me today? Though we await eschatological judgment, those of you who heard me preaching from the book of Revelation, there will come a day when the books will be opened. One is the Bible. One is our deeds. The other is the Lamb's book of life. God will look at the scriptures and weigh our lives against those things. And the question for you and me is, how many of your actions fall short of what scripture says you should do and should not do? That book of my sins will be much bigger than the Bible. But there is one book of great significance, and that is the Lamb's book of life. And despite whatever sins you and I commit, if our names are in that book, forgiven. Forgiven. That our names are there is connected to are we in Christ upon the cross? And if we are in Christ, and the Spirit has applied that work of salvation that we have nothing to fear in terms of the future. We have been made righteous. And our present justification is what guarantees our future justification. When Pilgrim went to the cross and he had that burden, that was what was rolling down. He gained assurance of salvation at the cross of Christ because he thought, it's not what I have done. It is what Christ has done for me. You know where that burden rolled? It rolled right into the open tomb. So leave your doubts there. Leave your striving apart from the redeeming work of Christ there. 
and find that in Christ you were fully justified. Amen.